You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Johan Jadeval, CEO at Viraya. So just because the person that you're talking to is friendly to you, you feel that, well, this is actually going really well. And I've seen this so many times, it's slightly embarrassing when you see it. Hi, and welcome to the fifth episode of the SAS Nordic podcast. We are approaching Christmas and we're going to have a short break when we come to the holidays. But before that, we're actually going to increase the speed and give you one episode a week. But what can we look forward to today, Daniel? In this particular episode, we're talking to a gentleman called Johan Jadeval, representing a company called Viraya. And I think timing-wise, it's perfect. They have a tool that helps customers uh, engage with their customers. And considering we're just around the holiday season here, this is something we all are interested in. So really exciting show. And if you like SAS Nordic, please follow us on LinkedIn. You can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and help us go higher up in the rankings and spread the word. And uh, why not give us some feedback on topics and guests that you would like to see on the show. But without further ado, let's go in and talk to Yuan at Viraya. Today, we are very happy to have Yuan Jadeval, CEO at Viraya, as a guest here at SAS Nordic. Welcome, Yuan. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, Yuan. Where are you situated today? Uh, right today, I'm working from home in Guildford, Surrey, uh, just south of London. Okay. Okay, but you you are a Swede from the very beginning, right? I am. Yeah, I used to grow up in the south of Sweden and uh, commuted every day after I finished university over to Copenhagen, where I used to work for 15 years. Uh, so I've always been working outside of Sweden, uh, but lived in Sweden for the first time in my career. All right. So could you start telling us a little bit more about yourself and your uh, career? Yeah, so uh, recently, well, now I'm the CEO of Raya um, and making sure that we turn this into uh, one of the best uh, software as a service companies out there. Um, and that's the remit I was given when, when I took the job. Uh, previous to that, I ran global sales at Episerver. And that started with me coming in and uh, uh, working on uh, strategic accounts, getting episode to work with large enterprise customers themselves, both in terms of selling to them, but also in terms of managing them. Uh, and that took off and, and episode, as you know, probably know, uh, was sold in 2018 uh, at a very good um, valuation, uh, after which I left it. Right. Yeah, we have both worked with Episerver for, for many, many years, and it has been inspiring to see the journey that you have had. And it's also uh, you know, we have also had um, joint a lot of joint ventures over the years. So definitely. And now you're with Viraya. Can you tell us a little bit uh, what does Viraya do and what is the problem that you guys solve for your customers? Yeah, so Viraya is fantastic at getting people to act. So we reach people that you have difficulty reaching in other ways. Typically, you already use marketing automation or contact centers or other means of. Of attracting your uh, your customers or making sure that you communicate with the customers, uh, we also know that that's quite uh, difficult, and the conversion rates are pretty low, uh, especially when you do this through email and, and uh, the traditional channels. Uh, so we have a solution that's built on uh, interactive voice calls, 
text messages and online landing pages that we continuously optimize to make sure that we reach as many as possible of the customers uh, and also make them act on the message that uh, that you want to get through. Right. And I would think something like this is uh, probably you know perfectly positioned considering the times we live in COVID and we, we all need to speak to our customers more frequently and get get in touch with them. Is that, is that true or is that an incorrect assessment? No, that's, that is absolutely true. And we see a lot of our customers having increased utilization of us by manifold. Um, they use us for more things. Typically, we come in working with a customer within one aspect of their customer journey. Uh, but we see that a lot of our customers now are looking at using us for ma- many more things within their, their customer life cycles. And it's, uh, I think it's important for them uh, that they can reach out with with the methods that we use uh, rather than that traditional, because at this point, everyone gets spammed now. I get, at least myself, get, you know, suddenly uh, 10 emails a day from some uh, retailers and, and some brands. Uh, and I don't, don't look at emails at all anymore. Uh, I know that you know, <laughs> some of them you have to look at and you, you kind of have to prioritize them um, when they're important. But you do tend to, to, to miss a lot of important stuff through all the, uh, all the spam that comes through the email. So what verticals are you working with and what kind of offering do you have for, for those customers? Yeah, we, we work very heavily in, in five different verticals. Uh, main ones are utilities, for example, where we work with almost all the larger energy providers in, in Sweden and, and also abroad. Um, we work with automotive companies, uh, telcos, and bank and insurance and also gaming customers. And within all of these, we have found specific critical moments uh, in the customer life cycle that we are really, really good at solving. So you can't really use us for everything. Uh, you can't use us to to tell a, um, a a consumer about your your newest promo if that's just a five percent off voucher, like you would do in an email or in an app. Uh, if you want to use us, it's something that has to be really important to both the, our customer, the person who sends the message, and also the recipient of the message. Uh, so we've picked out specific things in the customer life cycles. For example, in gaming, it's about when a, when a, uh, uh, when a player um, is just starting out, they've just registered their account. We then make sure that they, and they don't do anything more than that, we make sure that they go in and actually activate and, and play uh, on, on the site. Uh, in uh, utilities, it could be that we uh, help the utilities companies ensure that their customers stay with them through a moving process. When someone moves house, for example, we can make sure that we reach out to that person and proactively um, give them an incentive to stay on as a customer when they move to the new place. So you try to identify these situations at a certain time and also provide a simple call to action. Exactly, yes. And we typically also take care of the action. So you convert with us. So you, uh, a lot of our customers use us for the whole chain. We help them segment. Uh, we help them make sure that we know when to reach out to these people, um, both you know in terms of when where they are in the customer lifecycle, but also uh, what the typical type of message should be for a specific type of person. And we've built algorithms around quite a few of these things to make sure that we automate as much as possible of that. Uh, that's interesting to hear. So you, you've decided to have a very specific go-to-market approach into these five vertical sectors. What, was that a conscious decision from the beginning, or is this something that evolved over time? No, this has definitely evolved, and 
But previous to this, uh, and as all startups, I think you tend to try your product within as many different customer scenarios and situations as you possibly can, uh, because you you know that your technology is great. You know that it works, you know, uh, in those use cases where you've already tried it, and you want to see how many others it can it, it can work in. So Raya was very broad to start with, and it still is to some extent from, from quite a few of our legacy customers, and we certainly do take good care of them too. Um, it's only recent years that we uh, got this razor sharp focus on specific critical moments that we uh, defined. And the reason for defining them was because we saw that they had very high value to our customers. And we want to start, and I think it's always like that when you start in something that isn't a well-known entity. Uh, you don't know that you want Briar. You don't. It's not the thing you wake up in the morning and think, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy some Briar today. That's not uh, your typical shopping journey. So we have to educate our customers. And the best way to educate a customer in, in a place where they haven't been before is telling them the value they can get out of the solution. And then for, for that to be relevant, you have to pick the highest value uh, opportunities that are out there. So that's what we've tried to achieve within each of those uh, markets. We have looked at what are the specific uh, aspects of that uh, customer journey that really, really matters to them. And that really creates a high value for them when, when we manage to get the consumer to act and also in, a, in a, enough people for us to be relevant to use. Uh, if there is, aren't a lot of customers in the customer base, you can use, you know, you can call them up yourself uh, or you can use your contact center uh, or third party contact center. So it is, we need, you need uh, some scale for, for it to be effective uh, using us. So how do you prove the value to the first-time buyer? I mean, do you do RI calculations or, or trials or what does that look like? Yeah, so actually all our products have a, a firm calculation of ROI behind it. We know, for example, how much a certain, uh, how many percentages we can manage to reach in a certain setting. Uh, we also know how many of those we are likely to convert. Uh, we set out a goal together with our customer and tell them that for this customer segment, with this message, with this uh, in these channels in this way, uh, you're looking at a, a standard conversion of 20% using our solution. On email, that would be 0.7%, for example. So the uplift there would be the difference between the 0.7 and the 20% that we would be able to give them. Or it could be 35 or 3%. It depends really on, on which segment it is and, and what it is that we're trying to achieve. Um, but we know this through interactions and we've We've anonymized and saved all of these interactions that we've been doing for, for, for all time. So we have hundreds of millions of transactions uh, that, that we can use to refine our data points um, constantly. And all new co contacts that we use, uh, we obviously anonymize those as well and, and add them to the, uh, uh, to the uh, data pool that we have so that we get even stronger in, in terms of making sure that we can, uh, we can reach and convert better. Right. I thought it was interesting when you said that, uh, like for many startups in the, in the mornings, people are not necessarily thinking of Viraya, the first thing that they think about when, when they wake up. Um, and when you prove your, your value and the ROI here in, in, in your sales pitches, uh, and in the beginning, it might be a, a paper product. Do they expect you to prove that value in, in, in proof of concepts or something like that? Uh, and yeah, I think in, at the start of a, of, uh, of a new vertical, for example, where you don't have a lot of data points on exactly companies like them or with the same problems, uh, you typically have to do something to show them. Uh, it's easy when you're in a category that already exists. They typically already have a bake-off list, list of features that they want you to uh, 
uh, to show. Um, uh, here, it's not so much about the features, it's about the result. Uh, and what we uh, try to ensure in, in, in the conversations is that we can prove, you know, we use proof points from as many of, as possible uh, of our other segments that is looking similar, uh, because that is typically also uh, something they can use for their own reference. But if we really have to, we'll do a proof of concept. And sometimes we elect to do a proof of concept if it is something that we aren't completely sure about. Mm. We think that we we haven't really done this before. Uh, there is a risk here that we won't come out as well as we do, and that's not going to be a good cu customer relation over time. So maybe this uh, needs a test. Yeah. And then we agree a test period with the customer. I think this is a situation that many companies are, and I also believe that um, there are a lot of bad experience about proof of concept. So do you sort of have any learnings or any tips what you should think about if you're considering doing a proof of concept for, for a customer or a pr potential customer? There are actually quite a few. So first of all, the absolutely most important one is to have de defined success criteria and what happens when you reach those criteria. So if you don't go into the proof of concept with a clear goal, you're not going to succeed and the customer is only using it to keep you happy or, or keep you stringed along. Yeah, or show off internally, right? I got them to do this. So. Yeah, maybe, maybe that too. You know, that, can, for all sorts of reasons, that, that's not a good idea. You really have to have a goal and you also have to have an agreement on what's going to happen now. So uh, the person that you're talking to, if that person doesn't really have any decision power or any buying power within the organization, it's going to be really hard after the proof of concept to, to work your way through all the layers. Uh, so you really test that by saying, well, let's just write a contract. So uh, we we run this proof of concept for a couple of months uh, at a fixed price. It terminates if we don't achieve these proof points that we set out together, uh, conversion rates of X or whatever it can be. Uh, and if we do succeed with them, then this turns into a full-fledged contract. It's going to run uh, for a number of, year, number of years. And that tests that can this person actually buy stuff? Does he know the process for buying things? Because this contract is now a valid contract that needs to be go through any process they may have. Uh, and, and I think that shakes out. It's a good good qualification exercise when you do it like that. But uh, And I think the, the, the one thing that I would say as well that's really, really important is salespeople can't be reliant on proof of concepts all the time. That's the, just a lazy way of selling. They should always uh, be proud enough and understand enough about their products that they can try and sell it without a proof of concept. If, they, if, if they've sold it before to a similar category customer with a similar type of uh, use case and good results, they should be able to sell it without a proof for this company. Right. And the proof of concept, uh, is that something you charge for? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a valid, uh, it's a valid question because, you know, a lot of companies will like a demo. The problem with a proof of concept is that it, it's actually more involved typically than um, uh, than a normal start. It's because you have to do everything in quite quite a short time frame, and you have to optimize a lot over a, over a short period of time. So it's not just like running up a demo um, uh, that they probably wouldn't be charged for. But this is this is something that they actually will gain real value from, and if the targets are reached, then the return will definitely be that.
And I guess this is something that you should train your salespeople in, in how you have those discussions. Because I guess in some situations you feel that this is a really hard sell to do something that they might not be able to continue with. And it's much easier, as you said, to just give it away for free. But then you're going to have the cost somewhere else in the organization. And you waste a lot of time. I think the worst thing that can, you can do is have uh, a lot of invalid opportunities in your pipeline or leads that really aren't uh, leads. They, these are people that have shown some interest and they kind of just, just friendly with you for a long time, but they don't really intend to buy anything and they don't quite know how to buy stuff. And I've seen that quite a few times in my career that a lot of salespeople get this uh, optimistic outlook on, on things and they want they really want things to progress and sometimes they're lucky, but if they don't have a solid pro process in, behind them, it's going to be really, really hard for them to to actually get to that number. Yuan, uh, as you said, you've been with Viraya a little bit less than two years and you joined Viraya uh, as they had just started a, a transformational exercise. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and where you guys are at? Yeah, so uh, a couple of years ago, um, Viraya was really, really good at selling specific solutions to specific communication pro uh, problems uh, but individual to each customer and it was a lot of you know development it was a lot of consultancy involved to make sure that you could deliver those uh, solutions to people and the leadership at the time uh, rightly realized that this isn't a, a highly scalable model it's it's quite a difficult model to scale and there is high risk involved in in delivering that way so they decided to uh, to go on a journey towards more of a, a standardized approach with standardized products and what we now call the critical moments uh, on, in, in customer life cycles. Uh, but they, uh, and, and they also looked at how to make these journeys uh, recurring for, for our customers so that it was something that happened over and over again. And, um, uh, and they've been on this journey for a couple of years. Um, when I came in, um, they were at this point where they had you know, just stopped doing uh, the uh, one-off uh, non-recurring um, uh, consultancy uh, gigs and and focused much more on 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 these uh, recurring and what we've done now is making sure that we are uh, we refine those messages we refine the products make sure that we have the organization in place to manage that because it's a different organization to one that is very highly focused on on those one-off uh, solutions right I've personally seen it myself moving from one-off to call it a more subscription model and it's not an easy transformation to do <laughs> what's what's your take on this like how do you move an organization into to evolving to a more subscription-based focus it, it is a really difficult task uh, i think there are so many things in it the, one is the organization itself you need different type of people or you need a different type of uh, organization to manage customers over time uh, so First of all, the customer success organization in a setting of uh, of consultancy, those are typically the consultants that help uh, the customer on this one-time thing. And they do that one thing uh, over, over some time and then they leave it and move on to the next. Those aren't the same as the ones that uh, go in and, and every day make sure that the value of, that we bring to this customer is, is the highest possible and where they also constantly get the customer to understand that value that we deliver every day. It's a very different situation um so i would say customer success is one where the mindset change is is massive you know depending on the two 
ways of, of delivering your product. Uh, the other is obviously sales. Um, it, it is very different to sell something that is highly bespoke to one customer where you get very deep in uh, into the sales cycle and possibly so far over the line into delivery already in your sales cycle. Uh, and going from that to something where you are uh, selling um, multiple of the same uh, to different customers and you have to do it at some pace. Um, and it's it's a very different mindset. And also you have to understand that what you're selling to the customer needs to be truly recurring. It can't be uh, it can't be a a one-off that's kind of disguised as a, as a recurring um, offer for, for a customer. One thing that I thought was interesting when you talked about this the last time is basically that you said that it was you basically needed new salespeople or also sell to new persons at the companies that you had these discussions with. So I don't know, maybe if you could elaborate on that as well, because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so for, for me, it's been clear that you really need to have the right people to sell this. And, and it's hard to change mindsets at times. And a lot of people have gone into a company, they think the product is what they're selling. And it can be dif more difficult for them to change that perception than it is for a new person to come in that has been used to selling recurring before. And they come in and bring that knowledge with them in terms of both the sales process, but also how, how they work. And then they learn what it is that our product is, is really good at delivering. Uh, so that's one aspect that, you know, in, in terms of this uh, organizational transformation, retaining people that know how, uh, you know, you still need to retain your base business. That's critical. You, you, you need to make sure that those people that could sell uh, what you were previously delivering are still there whilst you're building it, uh, building your recurring business out because the re revenue difference and the revenue impact of recurring versus uh, non-recurring is quite big in the year that you work. So it's going to be, um, if, you, if you want to do this mindful of, of, uh, of your revenue and you don't get a revenue holiday from your board, you definitely need to make sure that you keep and retain some people and you add other people to sell the new offerings. Uh, into other types of customers. And also when you look at the the person out at the buyer side, um, th those are very different. So when you sell a, a one-off project to a marketing uh, organization, for example, or a, or a customer CRM organization, that's a different discussion to something that's going to be a partnership over a long time. It typically has to move up the, the value chain within the customer and it has to be anchored in many more places, you have to have a lot more stakeholders uh, than you were used to. Uh, so that's a very different sell altogether. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and the customer success managers, they play an important role in the success of, of the customers in this situation. What are you looking for in, in, in customer success managers? So what is a good customer success manager for you? Yeah, first of all, they need to understand the customer lifecycle at our customers. They really need to be good at understanding the customer lifecycle uh, specific moments that are relevant to this to, uh, to this type of customer. So domain knowledge is important. Domain knowledge is important. They don't need to have it uh, when they turn up, but they need to be very quick at getting it. And they need to, they need to learn terminology of, of the customer type that they work with. Uh, and really good ones, they, they can easily switch between terminologies based on, on the industry they work with. Uh, they also, of course, need to be very, um, they, they really need to listen to what the what the customer is saying to them. Um, I've seen so many times that they think a request from a customer is uh, is an order or something they need to do, 
but often it is they want to be challenged and they want to know is there a better way of, uh, of getting to that result that we want to achieve um, another thing that a customer success manager should be is also always telling thinking about the perception of of us as a as a company and how good our value is so that they can get the customer to increase uh, their spend with us because ultimately their job is to make sure that they retain the customer and also increase the value of that customer for us over time. So the customer success manager is probably the one that has the most frequent contact with the customer. And do you think that that person also should be able to resolve their issues him or herself uh, is one question. And the other one, what about upsales and customer success management? Should they also sort of uh, do that or do you need another process for that? I, I think it depends on, on what the product is that you're delivering. Uh, I think our product is slightly involved. There are certain things that the customer success manager can do themselves. One is uh, making sure that they are addressing the right issue. So if we have a, a, a communication in a critical moment, we it's not performing as well as we thought it would do. The customer success manager should then be able to adjust the communication making sure that we test the you know the right type of messages we look at our demographic data to make sure that we have we have the right um, messages and timings for the right people uh, and all these things that's something they should be able to do but in terms of actually managing that in the software itself uh, we have another team that help them with that for me a, a customer success manager has a responsibility to make sure that the customer engagement gets larger over time so it's not they're not supposed to be salespeople as, as such. You can have account managers that are focused specifically on selling to to your customer base for that, uh, but they should always look out for opportunities to improve the value of what we provide. And by doing that, they would also increase the customer spend because I think the the, the job here is to make sure that the customer that our customer gets the absolute most value out of our products as they possibly can, and that is really the customer success manager's job. And the way that we've, you know, the way that we grow is through the value to our customer. That's the way we 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 define our products and price our products. One of the dialogues that I'm involved in right now in, in my current jobs is is related to uh, uh, customer churn. And is is that something in your world should uh, be with the account manager or the sales team, or should it be the responsibility and the KPI for the customer success manager? It is explicitly in my customer success manager's um, KPIs. A customer success manager for me is someone who retains at least 105% of their customer base year on year. That sounds weird because it should be 100, shouldn't it? But the reality is you want it to be net of churn and downgrades. You want the customer success manager to have grown uh, the value within our customer so that they uh, so that they spend more with us. So for me, churn is definitely the customer success manager's job, and I wouldn't involve sales in it because sales, unless they have great relations and you can use them as a as a resource for you, but sales aren't responsible for churn unless they sold a bad contract in the first place, um, or you know promised something on the side that shouldn't have been promised. Then they can get to fix it. But I don't think as a standard process that sales should be involved in churn prevention. 
SAS Nordic is growing and now we're launching a unique peer-to-peer -peer community on Slack. My name is Nina, I'm the SAS Nordic Community Manager and I would like to invite you to join this exciting forum. This will be the place to network, collaborate and share knowledge with other SAS professionals in the Nordics. The SAS Nordic community is free and open to everyone working in Nordic SAS companies. Come join us at sasnordic.com. We can't wait to have you on board. Okay. Moving on, I would like to talk a little bit about go-to-market. Um, you guys have decided to have a, a very focused and niched approach. Uh, and in your previous roles, you had a much uh, uh, broader playing ground. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the differences between the two approaches? Yeah. So uh, when, you, when you're small and when you start out, it's, it's quite a lot easier to pick the the winning battles and, and work hard within those, especially when you're not in a category. Uh, you can't solve everything for everyone. And it's really important to realize that, I think, because you, you end up spending a lot of time on things that uh, you otherwise, uh, you, you could have spent that time on, on valuable things instead. So I think finding that niche and finding that opportunity early on that you can grow from is, is the most important thing that you do. So you find out where you're really good at and you grow from there. And then you can expand uh, as soon as you've got some foothold uh, and you've got a, a steady foundation to stand on. Uh, but I think that's critical when, you, when you're small. Uh, when you're at where I was before uh, at Heavy Server, we were in a category, we were in many categories actually because we were a, you know, a DXP, we were a content management system, we were an e-commerce solution, we were uh, multi-channel marketing, and intranets and everything. So we were in so many categories and we were in so many magic quadrants in Gartner and Forrester waves that it, it, we could always find an angle to, to get into an opportunity through some shopping list somewhere. And that's very different. Uh, it, it's different type of requirements. The selling process is very different. You, everyone knows something about you when you come in, you're being held up against three or four others at all times. Right. You don't ever go in alone. Where we go now, we don't compete with others doing the same thing as we do because there aren't really any any direct competitors as such that you know have picked the, uh, the, the way of doing things that we have. Uh, but we have a lot of competition with Share Wallet. So, for example, people may have invested heavily in a D DXP or a marketing automation platform, uh, and they think they solve the same problem using those platforms. Uh, and that's where we really need to work hard on, make sure to uh, explain to our potential customer that we do this so much better than what you're already doing, that it's worth the effort to, to introduce us and we can show it through these proof points. And it's so much easier to do that if you are narrow in your offer, because you can then show these offers and what you've done with others in the past. And typically, if you get early on some people that are well known in the industry and respected in the industry as your uh, as your references. Um, that's a great great way of, of growing. In your situation now, where you as a company m might not be that well known uh, broadly, how do you find new customers? So we, we've you know spent a lot of time working in various disciplines like events, like uh, digital marketing, uh, PR. And we get results from that. So uh, quite a few came. I, I had an article published uh, just the other week. And interestingly enough, we then have 10 people uh, reaching out straight after that. So we suddenly get an interest sparked through PR. Um, uh, that, that's one way. Uh, what we found, especially early on within an, an industry, 
uh, word of mouth is the most important thing that you can have. So delivering something successfully to someone that they become a star from. I know this is not the scale-up model that you would use over time uh, when you're a massive company with tens of thousands of employees. But, but at this stage in our company, word of mouth is really, really important. So when we give a customer a really good experience, they're doing something that's new and, and innovative, uh, and they show that this is creating results in a very short time frame. That's making them a hero. And I think that's a stakeholder, in the, the individual that's your champion within the customer. You've got to work to make that person really shine. I think that's the, so important. And this is obviously not a, 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 a specific point in our customer success playbook or a sales playbook, but we try, try to make sure that we deliver that fantastic results and, and the perception of that fantastic result to people that they can take on and, and, and provide to, to their uh, stakeholders within their organizations. But they also think about us when they move jobs, for example, or when they talk about others. So they say, look, I've been using this technology. It works fantastic, and you should try to. And, and do you have any mechanics in place to take uh, this positive word of mouth or when you've made somebody a hero to take that message from that person externally as well, so not just internally in the organization? Yeah, no, we, we typically do. And, you know, if, if, if it's a really good ambassador, we can engage them to speak on our behalf, for example, they can create a case reference or, um, or, or talk for us at events, for example, that has happened. Uh, so those are obviously very powerful messages, someone who's willing to stand up for you and talk about how well things, things went for you in a, in a wider setting. That's, that's really, really positive. And then another way is actually we have a very strong outbound team. Uh, and uh, that are actively pursuing people through an account-based uh, process within. So within the industries that we work in, we know the companies who are there and we know the people that we want to uh, engage with that we can make a positive benefit to. So we, um, we are specifically going to specific individuals, um, talking to them, making sure that they, we, we're seen where they are on LinkedIn or Facebook or other places and making sure that uh, they uh, they know of us, uh, even though they may not have known of us before uh, when we really want to talk to them. Right. So you mentioned digital marketing. Uh, have you found that there are any particular channels that works better than others for you? Yeah, I think we're in a B2, uh, B2B setting. Uh, so for us, LinkedIn is a very good place. A lot of people use that. They turn it on in the morning when they on their commute or before they go uh, into their office. Uh, in, in their homes, um, that's a that's a place where we spend a lot of effort. Um, then we don't do, for example, banner ads on on various sites because that's not for our uh, typical target group. Uh, but LinkedIn works really well, um, and our own website with uh, traction from PR that we uh, that we do is also working really well. So we create landing pages on our website that has a clear call to action, and we can also use that then to refine uh, our knowledge about the person that is uh, looking at us and do you have the same approach in all the regions where you're present or is it is it regional based and there's uh, differences yeah there are differences in our approach slightly because of the way that we're known so in sweden we're more well known for example than we are in the uk uh, so we've, we've got to take a little bit more of an aggressive approach in the uk uh, so in sweden we we have certain messaging uh, when we reach out, um, we also have more customers that people know of in Sweden, uh, but those customers aren't uh, always relevant in other countries. For example, 
Vattenfall, who's a customer of ours, a very good brand in Sweden, not at all known in, in the UK. Uh, so when our uh, sales devs uh, contact people in, in the UK, they go with other stories than, than they do in Sweden, for example. Uh, but we typically use the same channels and we typically use the same methods in terms of our getting, getting to people, uh, regardless of which market we're in. So when you go into new geographical markets, do you feel that you need to have a local presence there or what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's kind of a, a, an interesting question because it, it both it, you both need one and you don't. So at, at the start, it's really expensive to invest in, in, in moving into a new territory. Um, typically, you need to take a bit of time to understand the culture and, and finding the right people to for your, for your roles. And you typically don't get it right the first time around. So it's, it's a big investment. I think you need to understand before you move into a new region what that investment will be. And a lot of the sales that we do can be done from Sweden. We can easily reach large companies in, in various regions by uh, reaching out to them from Sweden. We don't speak so much about where we are. Uh, I know that there was a sales pitch that I saw that someone had used in our organization. The first line they said, we're a Swedish company. It doesn't really matter to a person in Germany if we're Swedish or not. They don't know much about Sweden unless they have a summer house here. No, but but is that the value proposition? Is that something positive? Where a Swedish company that is quality, that is IKEA, that is yeah. I yeah. know. I, I, I want to think that as a Swede. <laughs> yeah, we we all want to think that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Nordics. Yeah. It's pure air. It's you know nice people. It, it, you know, it's it's so built into us as Swedes that Sweden is so fantastic, and I think it's fantastic that we have that. You know, it's a base and a foundation that I love being on. And I love being happy about being from Sweden and you know, running a Swedish company. I think those are you know really really positive value words. But they work mainly internally. A customer in the UK, Swedishness is very low on the list of important uh, aspects of a purchase they will make. Uh, uh, as a mat- matter of fact, in Sweden, I used to work in in a bigger office in uh, at Episo in London, and quite a few of when it was the World Cup. And Sweden and Switzerland met. Some people said, oh, "How can they possibly meet themselves?" You know, <laughs> and that just shows it's not far. You know, this is London. People aren't stupid in London normally. And <laughs> but we have Slatan, right? <laughs> yeah, and people know Slatan. He's a great football player. And we think that England should remember him after you know they the, do, the... but they remember Slatan for being Slatan. They don't think about him as a Swedish uh, uh, heritage thing. Clearly, Sweden has a good reputation. That's not a problem at all. It's just it's, it's very dangerous to think that that's going to solve all the problems. I think <laughs> that's the that's the, the key message here. Uh, yes, fantastic to be proud of Sweden, uh, but don't you know don't think that's going to be your your salvation. So, how did you then decide for? Uh what the next market was for you uh and the reason why i'm asking is that um it's it's one thing to look at where do we have a lots of potential customers but we've all been through the journey we know how difficult it is to move into a country like germany you need to germanify everything so what was your take on this and how did you d- decide what's the next region outside of the nordics and the second one and so on yeah uh for for us it was a uh, there were a couple of things that that made sense uh, first of all, gaming being uh, one of our uh, industries, uh, so it was quite uh, easy for us to make the decision on getting people onto Malta because a lot of the gaming companies are there. Uh, so we have a, uh, we have people on Malta now. 
Um, the other, uh, so th this is where sometimes you just need to, when you've grown to a certain size within a segment, it's really important that you're visible to people also on the ground. And uh, we've seen there that there is, of course, a lot of discussions happening uh, on, on, you know, on the streets of uh, Valletta or, or, or the towns there. Making sure that you're in part of that conversation locally can be relevant to you. And for us, we decided that it was relevant specifically in that setting. And the other region that we moved into was here in the UK. Um, and I think a lot of Swedish companies would choose the UK because everyone speaks English, of course, and it's you feel that this is a very similar culture to, to Sweden and the Nordics. And that is true, but there are also some specific differences that you need to take into account. Um, the culture here, especially around sales, is much more aggressive. And it's a very, very uh, long and heavy process if you want to sell to any large company here. Uh, you have to make sure that you understand that the journey from, you know, uh, initial opportunity to close this can be very long. There is also a friendliness and a, a, a language here that is stringing uh, Nordic salespeople along. So just because the person that you're talking to is friendly to you, um, you feel that, well, this is actually going really well. Right. And I've seen this so many times. It's, it's slightly embarrassing when you see it and you see, oh, yeah, no, they had a fantastic meeting. It was so good. And they were so friendly. But that's just the way you are as, as a Brit. You, you are friendly. Right. Tell me a sales manager that has never heard. Uh, we just did a demo. They loved it. It's a deal. Yeah. No, unfortunately, <laughs> that's very, very normal. Right. And you got to you got to have salespeople that can see behind that and understand the real, you know, the real motivations and what really goes on and ask the right questions. And they can be in Sweden. They can sell from Sweden. Uh, I've seen quite good people do that uh, over, over here as well. But uh, what I've, you know, always come to the conclusion of is that if you want it seriously, you've got to have people on the ground at some point. But that's not necessarily from the start. I think we have people on the ground here because we are at that stage now that it, it's just inefficient for us to uh, to, to do it from, from abroad. Right. So do you also work with channel sales? No, not really. We have, we, uh, well, we have started some, some uh, aspects of it. We have a, a couple of technology partners where uh, you can buy as bundled with a, a different technology, for example, a, a customer relationship management uh, tool, uh, where our marketing automation tool, where we are, you know, a, a, a value add to those, and they, you can buy them through us. So those are kind of reseller partnerships that we we have with a couple of people. Uh, we started out with some solution partners, but it's not on our software. You don't typically build much, so it's not a it's not a typical uh, SI that we would partner with. It's more of a consultants, consultancy uh, that would benefit from partnering with us. And we have a couple of those partnerships as well, but we're retaining it to qu quite small number because we really want to focus, when we do things, we want to focus on doing it really well. And, uh, and it, when you're a small company, you need to make sure that you, uh, you have bandwidth to do all the things that you've set down to do so you don't just end up on a long list of things that you didn't achieve and didn't really fully try. Yeah. I just want to touch on, um, I'm a, sort of a tech geek and I saw that you're working with artificial intelligence uh, started, I, I think, uh, 2017. So what are you doing within that field and how has it evolved over the years? Yeah, so we we have, as I said before, we've get, got a lot of different um, data points around communication that we've been uh, storing over time. Uh, and these have helped us to build data models on 
for machine learning to ensure that we understand more about when to contact people with specific uh, traits, uh, when not to contact them, and which type of messaging to, to apply. Um, also, what time of day, what day of, of the week, uh, how long after or before a specific event, for example. All of this is built into our algorithms, and they're getting better and better all the time so that we can automate the, the journeys more. Can you share some examples? I mean, some fun example, or maybe something that you have noticed now in the times of COVID. Well, so we we found some interesting things. So one, one was that in Sweden, you're more uh, likely to uh, to actually pick up the phone and listen to it if it's someone from the north of Sweden that contacts you. Uh, <laughs> being from the south, I'm slightly offended by that, but <laughs> that's what the data says. Daniel, what do you say as a, a southerner in Sweden that uh, people from from the northern part of Sweden is more trustworthy? Uh, that's exactly what this data says. <laughs> But uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't subscribe uh, to that. <laughs> I guess at, at, at this point, I don't want to challenge the AI engine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, another was that it was pretty interesting. We also tested in a specific uh, use case, and this is really only for that use case. But uh, uh, males over fifty-eight picked up the phone uh, earlier than anyone else, which is interesting. I don't know many males unless you know in my parents' generation that are. It's very specific. Older. Yeah, it's very <laughs> fifty-eight. That's the break. <laughs> that was a breaking point. I need to know. I'm really curious now to get to fifty-eight, so I know what's going to happen. <laughs> what what really happened? Very cool. Um, very interesting conversation. And I actually have two questions where I would like you to share uh, a piece of advice to 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 Thomas and myself here and everybody else listening to the show. Uh, the first question is related to how do you sell into a new category in first-time buyers? So software companies that are about to embark on this journey, what's your advice to them? Yeah, so uh, first of all, uh, a new category is tough because you've got to make sure that you have all the uh, you have the right attitude when you explain what you're doing. Start with the value to the customer early on so they understand that, oh, wow, this is something I actually should look at. And then make sure to uh, to to have data points to back that up. That's critical. Otherwise, you're not going to get any airtime at all. Um, and then uh, make sure that you are uh, you know adaptable to a certain extent. Make sure that you understand what it is that they uh, that drives them, so that you listen to their KPIs and and make your solution fit into those as well as it possibly can. Um, and also, I think qualify out. If there are, if there isn't a fit, and you realize it, don't waste any time. Um, it's so easy to just think that this is going to be something at some point. It's much better to just get to that point where you actually know if this is going to happen or not as soon as you possibly can. And now, when you have been a part of two transformational journeys, uh, is there something that you feel that you would have done differently? S some mistake that you would sort of uh, advise not to do? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's not so much a mistake, but I think it's always about making sure that you realize the value of this mindset change that needs to happen within the organization and also realize who's with you on that mindset change or not. You make sure that those people who aren't ready to make that leap uh, get time or they you know get to know that the, this is the journey forward and you agree on a on either a path together or, or not together and then get the right people in to make sure that you can can do this transformation as early as you possibly can. Um, running with the wrong team for, for any amount of time is just de detrimental and slows everything down. Uh, so, so I think that's the critical part of this learning, I would say. That's really good advice. Tell us a little bit, Johan, what's the future for Viraya? Where, would, where do we see you guys next? 
Well, so we are definitely going to be uh, a lot stronger in Europe. We, we're uh, working hard in almost all regions now uh, with with customer uh, potential customers. We're going to strengthen our algorithms, automating our product a lot more, uh, and we're refining our data foundation uh, as we speak. So. Uh, so you're going to see us a lot, I think. Um, there's already a lot of noise about us uh, right now, and and that we're certainly not going away. And we're going to continue on our journey to uh, uh, to, to a recurring uh, model over time, and uh, obviously also increase the number of touch points that people use us for, and increase the number of verticals that we work in over time. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to follow your journey. Great, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Yuan, for joining the show. Yeah, bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. So Daniel, what is your main takeaway from this episode? There's a couple of things, but the biggest takeaways that, that I walk away with is how he speaks about critical moments. When you are a new player, you got to define the critical moments and prove the value in those moments with proven data points. So I think he, he just positioned it really well, how you have to be super sharp in your offerings from the get-go. So my main takeaway, um Having worked as a sales engineer for many years, I think it's important when you do a proof of concept that you already from the beginning define the success factors so you know when you actually fulfilled uh, your part of the project and also if you have defined the next step. Another thing is that you should really charge for your proof of concept. If you don't do that, you can't be sure if they are really um, interested or if they are just you know trying you out. And uh, that will also make it easier when it comes to the uh, the sales process and when they become a customer that you see that you have that kind of relationship from the beginning. Thanks, Thomas. That's an excellent point. And to all the listeners, once again, we'd appreciate the support if you keep following us on LinkedIn, if you give us good ratings on Spotify. Yes, we really appreciate all your support. So um, take care now and see you next week. <laughs>